Christmas is coming. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it? I always love the Christmas season, and I think probably you've heard the story about the refrigerator arc that comes home from Sunday school, uh, the drawings that the little children do. One of my favorite uh, stories is about the child who was uh, trying to draw the picture of the uh, story of Joseph and Mary and the manger. And so they came home with the picture, and the mother always is debriefing because she wants to make sure the child has gotten the story correctly or whatever the child might need. So she says, well, what have you drawn today? Because she was a little curious because it was a jet airplane. And so she's looking at this jet airplane, and inside the cockpit, uh, she thinks she recognizes the characters. And so she looks inside the cockpit, and she said, I think that's Joseph, isn't it? And the child says, yeah, that's Joseph. And she said, and that's Mother Mary, right? Yeah, that's Mother Mary. And, I, and that, that's little baby Jesus, right? Yes, yes. And the mother's a little quizzical. Uh, she's not quite sure. And so she looks over at the, the person that's at the controls. And so she thinks a minute and she says, and, and I guess that's God driving the jet plane, uh, flying the jet plane. And the child looks back up at the mother incredulous. No, that's Pontius the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I just love it. You know, that refrigerator art can be memorialized forever, huh? Pontius the pilot. I am just so grateful to be here to share with you. I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach this morning. And I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. And now, oh, Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most enduring television specials of all time is a Charlie Brown Christmas based on the Charles M. Schultz Peanuts comic strip and its entourage of characters that comprise the neighborhood gang first broadcast in December of 1965. The production received high critical acclaim, winning both Emmy and Peabody Awards. A Charlie Brown Christmas became a staple of the Christmas season. The opening premiere celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2015, and of course, we had to get a Christmas ornament to celebrate this 50th anniversary. I love this ornament because you punch a button on it, and of course it plays that famous Linus and Lucy song by Vince Guaraldi. In fact, the jazz score for the TV special by Vince Guaraldi sold 4 million copies in the United States alone. The opening notes are recognized even today around the world, and let's listen in right now. I love that. 
I had to get my band in on the sermon, you know, so I just love that song. It's just so Christmas to me. I could hear it over and over and over again. The plot of A Charlie Brown Christmas is brilliant. Though the cheerful Christmas season has arrived, Charlie Brown finds himself unexpectedly depressed. Manning her pseudo-psychiatric booth, Lucy suggests that Charlie direct the neighborhood Christmas play to get his mind in the groove of the season. The result, however, implodes in disaster and chaos. Charlie Brown's directing efforts to produce a good Christmas play are rendered vain by extravagant egos and over, overly timid actors and other vexing problems. Now, to add insult to injury, the whole gang makes fun of his scraggly little Christmas tree he has adopted from the local Christmas tree lot. So throwing up his hands in exasperation, Charlie Brown exclaims, Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Well, Lucy's younger brother, Linus, tender in age but unduly wise in life, explains with comfort blanket in hand the reason for the season. Taking his place under the spotlight on the Christmas plays stage, Linus offers a brilliantly unpretentious but powerful recitation of the first Christmas story from Luke's Gospel. Like Charlie Brown, we all have trouble understanding the meaning of Christmas. We have even greater trouble knowing how to play out our part in the drama on the stage of modern life. Young but wise Linus reminds us one of the great truths of Christmas is the song the angels sing. Peace on earth, good will. Our difficulty with that message is that news broadcasts make pathetically clear that peace is hardly to be found anywhere. Rather, like Charlie Brown's Christmas play rehearsal, we have chaos and disaster. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, Christmas Bells, is a similar story of having a hard time finding the meaning of Christmas in the world around us. Longfellow's beloved wife of many years tragically burned to death in a fire in 1861. Just two years later, he received the distressing news that his eldest son was wounded severely in November 1863 in the Battle of New Hope Church in Virginia during the Civil War. In despair, Longfellow wrote a poem one month later on Christmas Day, 1863. The poem was titled, Christmas Bells. As Longfellow opined, hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, good will to men. The poem later was put to song, which today we sing as, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. 
Indeed, the angels of heaven need to sing more loudly. Sing, ye angels, sing your song. What do we need to do to hear the angels' song? To hear the angels sing. First, Let's read the opening verses of Luke 2, 1 through 7. I invite you to read along with me, although I am translating directly from the Greek text, so your wording might be different. Now it happened in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the inhabitants be taxed. This enrollment first happened during the administration of Quirinius of Syria, and all were proceeding to be enrolled, each one to his own city. Now Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be enrolled with Mary, who was betrothed to him, who was pregnant. Now it happened that while they were there, the days for her to give birth were fulfilled. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and swaddled him and laid him in a stall, a fatne in the Greek text, and we really don't know what it is. That word is an odd, strange word, not used very often, but when it is used in the ancient world, it usually means a feeding trough. Now, you might have grown up on a farm and have seen these in barns where you just simply take a slat of wood and you make a V out of it and you nail it in. And out of that V slat of wood, you've got some feeding trough for your animals and you just pour the grain into that trough. That could be a fatne, but a fatne also could be the stall where animals are kept, just the general stall itself. Whatever fatne is, that is where they were. That is, they were not in comfortable surroundings, surroundings that were really not fit for a king. You see, the king of the Jews at this time was Herod, and there he was in his palace, all bedded down with his satin and his silks. And here's the king of the Jews lying in the straw with the animals. A fatne. And laid him in a stall since there was no place for them in the way station, the katalumity. Again, we really don't know what this word translates. It probably means an inn, but you shouldn't think of Holiday Inn, or you shouldn't think of Marriott, or you shouldn't think of Hilton. This inn or way station is just a station along the way. There may be a, a, a tender there who provides some kind of services, but there's no security. There is a, a, a load of bad 
kinds of criminal element around because they are robbers and they are looking to rob you. So it's a very unsafe, a very undesired place to stay, a katalumity. There are rodents everywhere. There are lice everywhere. It's just not a good place. Look at the contrast. A katalumity. There wasn't even a there wasn't even room in the cotalumity, the way station. So they're out there in the stall. I have only two points to make in this message. First, we must see the setting. And second, we must hear the song. First, we need to see the setting. We need to know that times were just as desperate when Jesus came in the first century world as today. Our first observation is to pay attention to how Luke establishes the setting of his story of the angel song in the first two verses of chapter 2 of the gospel. Now in these opening verses that Luke does not precisely date the birth of Jesus, but he does carefully time frame the birth, the coming of age of the Roman Empire created by Augustus. If you lived in that day, you would know why. You automatically would comprehend that elements of the story of Augustus directly compete with the story of Jesus. I want to provide just a few illustrations from that first century world so that you can comprehend we have two competing gospels when Jesus is born. One illustration of Luke's setting is Augustus himself. You never knew Augustus, but you need to know he was one of the most serious dudes of all of history. In fact, all of Western civilization as you know it right now traces back to this one ruler, the empire he established, and the historical forces he set in motion. Before Augustus, Rome had endured two hundred years of Roman civil wars. The centuries-old Roman Republic was collapsing. Yet, after the collapse of the Second Triumvirate, the general Octavian won the naval battle of Actium in 31 BC against the forces of Antony and Cleopatra, queen of Egypt. Octavian thereby ended the Roman civil wars and single-handedly saved the dying Roman Republic from fading into oblivion on the horizon of Western history. Octavian was renamed Augustus, revered one by the Roman Senate for his astounding accomplishments. The Romans even renamed a month of the year after him. Augustus applied his brilliant administrative skills toward reorganizing the imploding fragments of the Roman Republic and used his vaunted political savvy with both the Roman Senate and the Roman people to lay the foundations of what would become the Roman Empire. His empire lasted 
1,000 years. No other ruler on earth ever accomplished such a feat. The empire of Augustus was founded on the famous Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Augustus bragged about the Pax Romana he created in his last will and testament that he posted in inscriptions around the empire, formerly known as the Res Gestae Divi Augusti. I was able to see a copy of this inscription in the archaeology museum in ancient Antioch of Pisidia, which is today's modern Yavas. Another illustration for catching Luke's setting shows up in the imperial altars that populated assembly halls, theaters, and temples in cities across the Roman Empire. One of these imperial altars celebrating Augustus was discovered only recently in the theater at Metropolis, a thriving community just a few miles north of ancient Ephesus in Asia Minor. After the Battle of Actium, the victorious general Octavian was magnanimous to the cities of Asia Minor, who had aligned with his enemy Antony. Octavian did not invoke financially disastrous war reparations on the cities, and instead he accepted their oath of fealty to his rule. The citizens of Metropolis expressed their gratitude in an inscription on an altar in their theater. The inscription hailed Octavian as the Hilasterion, the reconciler, the one who made peace on earth. This word, Helasterion, that's in this inscription to Augustus, is the exact same word that the Apostle Paul used to describe Jesus in Romans 3, 25. Paul described Jesus as the Helasterion, the reconciler. Later in Romans 5, 6, Paul also said Jesus made peace. Both Jesus and Augustus are making the same claims in terms of the significance of their reigns for the world. Another illustration for catching Luke's setting can be seen in the Arapasis Auguste in Rome. After victorious military campaigns in Hispania and Gaul, Augustus returned to Rome in 13 BC to great honors. One of these honors was a commission on July 4, 13 B.C. by the Roman Senate that a great altar be built for Augustus. The altar was consecrated in 9 B.C., less than five years before Jesus was born. The Senate named the altar the Arapasis Augustae, or Altar of Augustan Peace. The altar was dedicated to the Roman goddess of peace, Pax, and to the imperial family of Augustus who preserved that peace on earth. In a lack of foresight, the altar was erected in the floodplain of the Tiber River. Over time, the altar was buried under 13 feet of river silt and lost to history. 
Just in the last century, however, the altar was rediscovered, restored, and relocated to a museum in 1938. The Arapasis altar is one of the most important artifacts of the ancient Roman Empire, documenting Roman imperial propaganda about peace and prosperity in the Roman world that Augustus had brought to the world and the divine right of the Augustan imperial line to rule over land and sea. There is your other gospel of peace on earth. A final illustration of seeing Luke's setting is how Augustus was hailed as Savior of the world. The Roman poet Virgil sang the praises of Augustus in Ecologue 4, 4 through 52. Virgil likened Augustus to the god Apollo. Now a generation descends from heaven on high, Virgil writes. Smile on the birth of the child, and a golden race spring up throughout the world. Thine own Apollo now is king. He shall have the gift of divine life, and shall sway a world to which his father's virtues have brought peace. There is your other gospel of a Savior on earth when Jesus is born. While some like Virgil celebrated the empire of Augustus and its Roman peace, for countless others the empire was imposed by raw force, coercion, violence, and war. To keep the Pax Romana, Augustus stationed Roman legions around the world. And to be sure, these legions created stability and security throughout the empire, which was a boon for all commerce and life. Not unexpectedly then, businessmen in Asia Minor, for example, were quite satisfied with their profitable arrangements with Rome. Good for business. Not all conquered peoples, however, were so happy to be conquered and forced into subservience. Such was the experience of the Jews in Judea. The times were desperate for Jews under Roman rule when Jesus was born. And in fact, the times got so terribly desperate, the Jews finally revolted against Rome in the first Jewish war of A.D. 66-70. to So, my first point is, you must see the setting. Luke's setting provides a a vivid imperial backdrop to the angel's song in Luke 2. My second point is that all people need to hear the angel's song. The problem is, other choirs and other songs compete. The Pax Romana and the divine right of Augustus to rule was the alternate gospel that Rome was singing to the world when Jesus was born. Rome preached this gospel in her literary poets, marble statuary, numerous inscriptions, imperial temples, honorific monuments, sacrificial altars, and imperial reliefs. 
Rome's version of good news for the world, Virgil lauded in a paean of praise to Augustus. That was the imperial gospel. The good news from Rome for the world. And that was the gospel with which Luke competed. You have to live in Luke's world to hear Luke's calculated imperial reverberations in his story of the birth of Jesus. Linus told us about the angel's song as he recited for Charlie Brown, Luke 2, 8 through 14. Yet in a world with other gospels, how do we hear the song Linus told us about? First, we need to follow the shepherds. We need to go and see for ourselves. Not just the story that someone else tells us about, but a story that we experience so that we will be witnesses to the story and not get it secondhand. I'm afraid most Christmas stories are second, third, and tertiary hands. It's not really a story you experienced. So we need to follow the shepherds. We need to go and see for ourselves. Here is that part of Luke's story in Luke 2, 15 through 19. And it happened, as the angels went from them into heaven, the shepherds were saying to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this declaration which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and discovered both Mary and Joseph and the infant lying in the stall, the fatne. And after they saw, they made known about the declaration which had been spoken to them concerning this child. And all those who heard marveled concerning what had been spoken by the shepherds to them. Now Mary contemplated all things, pondering these pronouncements in her heart. That is what we need to do. Like the shepherds, we need to go and see the babe. Like Mary, we need to ponder all these things in our hearts for ourselves. You may have seen a Christmas play, but have you ever gone backstage and met the star of the show? Have you ever met Jesus? Do you want real peace? If yes, you need to bring Bethlehem into your world, and you do not need a plane ticket to do so. Jesus died for our reconciliation and rose for our justification. He rose! He is alive. And if Jesus 
is not here right now talking to you. Christmas is dead. The world wants to scrub Jesus out of the Christmas season because his gospel challenges all other gospels of this world, just like in the first century world of Augustus when Jesus was born. Watch those sappy Hallmark Christmas movies that run nonstop for a month or more leading up to Christmas. The name of Jesus is never heard. You should note carefully that no problem in any hallmark plot ever is solved by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. How is that Christmas? The question asked in Hallmark Christmas movies. The crisis of faith in Hallmark Christmas movies is whether you believe in Santa. And that's the only crisis of faith you will ever hear about in a Hallmark Christmas movie. Then, as if that's not enough, a Christmas commercial comes blaring through and makes clear that the God of America's Christmas season is mammon. Just like businessmen of Asia Minor sold out to the false gospel of Rome, commercial interests today sell out to the false gospel of capitalism. And make no mistake, capitalism must erase Jesus from the message of Christmas to make a business of the season. It's another gospel. So how do we hear the angel's song Linus told us about? First, we need to follow the shepherds. We need to go to Bethlehem to see for ourselves. And Bethlehem comes to us in the risen Christ who is here right now this morning. You are in the Fatne this morning. You are there. You are at the stall. You are looking at a little baby a tiny little baby, and God is telling you, here is peace on earth, goodwill to humanity. You need to follow the shepherds. We have to go to Bethlehem to see for ourselves, and interestingly enough, through the resurrection, Bethlehem comes to us. The second thing we need to do is we need to believe the message. The question is, what gospel are you preaching at Christmas?
Note how Luke concludes the story of the angels in Luke 2.20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God over everything which they heard and saw, just as was spoken to them. To hear the angels' song, you have to believe their message. The shepherds believed the message of a Savior bringing true peace to the world. Shepherds living in the so-called Pax Romana, enforced by Augustus's Roman legions throughout Judea, found true peace on earth, not in Rome, but in a baby, in a fatne, in a stall. Their lives were changed more deeply than Rome's emperors ever dreamed or Virgil ever sang. The question is, shall we listen to Rome's Virgil or whatever other gospel is being preached in our world? Should we listen to Rome's Virgil or America's Mammon or like young Linus? Listen to Luke's angels. Now, I suspect many listening right now might say they know the answer to Charlie Brown's question. After all, we are in church on a Sunday in December. We have heard many a Charlie Brown Christmas play and know that Jesus is the real gospel of peace on earth. But Luke's angels apparently are not singing loudly enough. Not loudly enough, that is, actually to change our lives. The problem is, whereas we might know the answer to Charlie Brown's question, we do not live the gospel of peace. Even in our own daily lives, we do not do the things that make for peace. So our Christmas hallelujahs can be rendered rather hollow. And because we cannot find and show the peace of Jesus in our own individual hearts, the world cannot find reason to believe the angel's song. Someone might say, it's Christmas, but I have to ask, is it? Are you the reason why someone who is lost as a goose this Christmas season yet cannot believe in peace on earth, goodwill to men. Oh, please, please hear the angels sing.